Uh, welcome back to Calvary Life. This is a podcast for the membership of Calvary Baptist Church, but also anybody that's interested in uh, local church issues. Uh, I'm Charles Uptain. I'm Paul Thompson. And today we have asked uh, the person who's usually behind the uh, keyboard, so to speak, to come and have a microphone as well. So introduce yourself, please. I'm Justin Walters. Hey, Justin. It's good to have you with a microphone today. So uh, we expect a lot of uh, good information from you today. Justin will be <laughs> dropping the hard questions, throwing his curveballs on this challenging subject today we've we've taken on yeah so today we want to talk about um the reformation talk about why we are protestants and uh, paul was talking about just a minute ago about a uh, post he saw so paul start with that and and uh, where we are when it comes to being protestants it was just kind of funny i was looking at this this group i'm in on facebook about dothan happenings and and somebody posed a question. This is not going to be verbatim because I don't have it in front of me, but somebody posed a question. Are there any churches in Dothan that are hosting a trunk or treat for Halloween this year? And, of course, the, the answers were kind of kind of telling and, and some humorous and some not intentionally humorous and, and some very serious. But there was a disparity between some of those who said, no, no way, not at my church. We don't worship Satan. We're not doing that to others who just listed the church. Yes, we're having these in the schedule. Please come. You're invited. And and then a little bit of debate on there. But I thought it just sort of reminded me that for Christians, far too often we forget a much more significant occurrence um, that we should be taking note of, and I think reminding ourselves of the significance of, importance of, that uh, happens on October 31st, and that's Reformation Day. What's the Reformation about? And, you know, Charles, you mentioned at the beginning of the introduction, the Reformation does answer the question of why are we Protestant? Why, why are we not Roman Catholic? Yeah. Um, why, are, why are we not all the same under one little c, Catholic, unified body of Christians worldwide? Why the great separation between those who fall under the large umbrella of Protestant and those who, who are Catholic? And that's what the Reformation really is all about. Yeah, um, the reason I wanted Justin to be a part of this is because um, in our resource center, we have uh, even had a, a, a little area that we've kind of put some tools there that deal with Reformation and those kind of things. And so, Justin, you've kind of had a passion for this. I've seen that in you um, just in some of the things you read, some of the things you hand off. So why is the the Reformation so important to you? What, why is that such a, a key moment to you? Well, as the saying goes, that those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. I think the same applies for the church. And so why wouldn't we want to study our own history and where we come from? Um, not just the Reformation, but all of church history. But the Reformation is so central to um, where we are today, what we believe, and why we believe it. Um, you know, we're not going to be selling indulgences anytime soon, and I don't think many churches will. But at the heart of indulgences was access for a price anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I think you still have churches that are giving access, uh, keys to the kingdom, um, as it were, for something other than the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's just something we want to guard carefully and make sure that we are not preaching anything other than grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone for the glory of God alone, which is ultimately the main focus of the Protestant Reformation. Justin was just showing me this book, which on the outside looks like a kid's book, Reformation ABCs, The People, Places, and Things of the Reformation. But as I was uh, flipping through the pages before we began, I realized, man, I don't know, like three or four or five of these myself on here. I need to revisit the Reformation ABCs. Maybe I'll take this home with me and sit with my two-and-a-half-year-old <laughs> granddaughter 
Charlie, and we'll you know we'll go through some of these. Um, she needs to know who Ulrich Zwingli is. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. O is for the Olympics, otters, and the Oxford Martyrs. So maybe she can go back to preschool tomorrow and talk about the Oxford Martyrs. But does that does that just speak to the fact that we don't pay much attention to the Reformation? That um, that even uh, a uh, a resource center that would have something like that in it uh, would need to be something that we put forward before our people because it's not something we normally think about. Yeah, I think that's true. I don't think we know enough about it in general. I mean, I don't say that as disparagingly as it sounds. I don't think necessarily to be healthy, faithful Christians, we need to know all the details and, and in and outs of the Reformation. But I think as a general rule, and we've heard this, we've all heard this throughout our education, whether it's high school, college, or whatever, those that are ignorant of history are bound to repeat it. And if we're not aware of the challenges to the faith that took place uh, many years ago, over 500 years ago, and the response to them, then um, I think we'll be prone to some of those errors today. And, and, you know, you mentioned it before we began, even some of the modern teaching that we take some opposition to, um, that would imply that Reformation doesn't matter anymore, that, you know, I, I know I won't get this exactly right. Um, you can all Google it and find the teaching for yourself. When, but Beth Moore talking about God speaking to her in, in, in a dream, was it? Was it a dream? Justin, do you remember? Was this? But speaking to her that God's revealing to her that his people, Romans and Roman Catholics and Protestants, need to come together, et cetera. Um, well, no, we have, some, we have some decided differences in, in critical points of theology that really are fruits of the Reformation that we still hold today. So, um, no, I think we need to understand the basics of it. We need to understand who we are, understand our own history. And one of the things we've been doing here at Calvary for a long time is trying to help our folks understand the connection between Calvary, say, 2023, and historic Orthodox Christianity from the first century, that the closer we are to the historic Orthodox roots of our faith, the closer we are, I think, to to biblical fidelity and, and spiritual healthiness. So, you know, we want to be able to say that we're doing what Jude commands us to, that we are contending for the faith once and for all entrusted to the saints. And again, that brings us back to the topic of Reformation because the church had undergone a long, dark spiritual age, and it had to be reformed. So I think you know, as we talk about Reformation, we need to think about this is not something that happened in a vacuum. It's really a response to something. The theology, the teaching, the actions of the church had become deformed. They had deviated from, from Scripture, and there was an increasing awareness of a need to reform. And so when we talk about the Reformation, we're talking about how do we reform, realign back to Scripture? How do we bring it back? How do we recapture what's been lost? How do we renew ourselves spiritually? And so that's really kind of the heart, heart of the purpose of the Reformation. Yeah, so when you look at what really the Protestant Reformation stood up or what we look at now, the things that we can say, these are what the, the doctrines or the, the main thoughts, you've got the five solas, right? I mean, that's, that's really what came out of it. They wouldn't have said that then. They, didn't, I guess, didn't use those words, but we have used those words. And it's become— Yeah, as we summarize it ourselves, of course, they didn't have those. You know, they weren't making pamphlets and things. And, right, and, and so you get down to those five solas— um, and those things are still differences, we would say, that we have with Roman Catholics today, right? Yeah, I mean, you go back to the kind of the beginning, um, what's considered the formal cause 
the technical calls of the Reformation, and it was the sale of indulgences. Now, I mean, you're not going to meet a Roman Catholic today anywhere who would say, oh, yeah, I believe in indulgence. I, I believe that you can sell some religious artifact, some supposed piece of the cross or a piece of the Apostle Paul's garment or, you know, any other nonsensical item. I don't believe there's any artifact that has spiritual value, and if you purchase it from the church, you're guaranteed um, eternal life, you're guaranteed rescue from purgatory. But, you know, that was the original cause. But what that led to was the first of those five solas. So what really pushed the issue was, wait, is this, a, is this the means by which a person is really made right with God? Like, you, you know, people may be familiar with that, you know, that phrase that, um, uh, that Tetzel is, is infamous for saying, as soon as the coin and the money box rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Well, nobody believes that now, but it forced the issue of people to reevaluate Scripture. What does the Scripture really say? How, how am I made right with God? And so it led to the first, I think, the real cause of, of the Reformation, the formal cause of the Reformation, was Scripture. Um, scripture alone. Scripture alone is going to guide us. Now, if you talk to Roman Catholics during the Reformation, or even Roman Catholics today, they would say, yes, no, we believe in the Bible. But pronounced in both eras would be, but it's always subject to the authority of the church or the teachings of the church or the practices of the church or the traditions of the church. And those traditions had led to this. And even today, we see this emphasis on Mary worship and um, praying to to dead people, saints, et cetera, and so many aberrations from Scripture that we need to constantly revisit that that initial cause of the Reformation, that Scripture possesses sole infallible authority uh, for us as Christians. And so that really that's really where it began. And then from there it led to, I think, the most critical element of the Reformation, which still marks our distinction today, Protestant from Catholic, is the nature of justification. Yeah. I mean, how is a person made right with God? Justification through faith alone and Christ alone. And so, you know, we would say that the Reformation was the recapturing of the true gospel. It was not, you know, this isn't the beginning of, uh, you know, what a lot of people would mistakenly say, well, this is Reformed theology or Calvinism or those kind of things. No, really, in its wider sense, the Reformation was the recapturing of the gospel of Jesus, the teachings of the Apostle Paul, the teachings of the early church, the teachings of Scripture. And so, in that sense, if you're if you're Christian, and you believe the Bible, and you accept Jesus as the sole means to the Father, the sole means of salvation, and the sole means of that salvation is His grace given to us by faith, then you're a son or daughter of the Reformation. And so, you know, we all fall under that sort of big rubric. But those are the two big principles: sole infallible, you know, the, the solely infallible Scripture as authority and justification by faith alone. And then everything else that you talked about in those five solas really flows out of that. Yeah, it's funny. We were uh, on our vacation a couple weeks ago, and we had a tour guide one day that was taking us to um, some of the huge churches there in, in France. And um, it was funny. He had it completely backwards because, you know, he's got us. He's got a he's got a group of, you know, uh, Southern Baptists with him, so to speak, from Alabama talking to him. And he's from um, you know, he was actually from Serbia. And so he goes, well, y'all are Protestants. That means y'all have to work for your way to get to heaven. And he was like, whoa, whoa, what? No, no, you got it completely backwards. What we as Protestants believe is there is no works that gets us to heaven. It was just funny to hear from him. He was agnostic, but he had it 
totally confused with even what we would consider the long-standing uh, belief of what separated Roman Catholics from Protestants. He had it completely backwards in that. Right, and even when we use the same terms, you know, it's a great point. Like a Roman Catholic might talk about grace, but it's not the same. It's not the same terminology we would use. So grace would be something that the church could dispense to you. They can dispense to you graces, and we would say no. Grace is what God gives us through faith. And it is the power of God to forgive our sins and to transform us. And it's through no works of our own. It's through no actions of our own. And, you know, a Catholic person, certainly at the time of the Reformation, might also talk about, um, you know, God's mercy, um, Jesus' death on the cross, etc. But they would also teach that good works must be added to that in order to merit salvation. So the righteousness that you receive is only part of it. You must receive the graces. You must develop self-righteousness in order to merit salvation. And then today you might talk to a modern Roman Catholic person and you ask them this question, when you die, um, will you be in heaven? Will you go to heaven? And if your answer is yes, how do you know? And listen to the answer that you get. Well, no one can really know. Well, we couldn't be sure. Well, I'm doing these things or I've been, I've received baptism. I've received Holy Communion. So in other words, what they're saying is I've received these graces through the church versus... I have the grace of God because of faith in Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me and uh, was raised from my, from my justification. So, you know, it's, it, it, is a big, it is a big shift. Um, our virtue, our good works, our meritorious acts, however you want to describe those, those are not the things which make us right with God. Um, it's, it's grace alone. So when you think about those big five solas, if somebody says, okay, so summarize the Reformation for me, I would use the list you, you referenced at the beginning. Again, they, didn't, they weren't operating from that as their, as their starting point as a list. This is our summation afterwards. But those big five solas, sola scriptura, scripture alone, the Bible's our highest authority, our sole authority for matters of faith and practice. And when we say faith alone, I mean, I'm sorry, scripture alone, we're not saying that you know, the Bible is the guidebook to every aspect of life and everything you'll ever need to know about. Everything is in there. Uh, what we're saying is what God chose to reveal to us about himself and how we would know him, be related to him, have a relationship with him, be reconciled to him, um, enjoy him for forever is found in Scripture. Yeah, I've, I've had a great time in how we've done systematic theology in our open classes the last um, these last couple of of um, you know quarters because everything in that systematic class has been back to the authority of the Bible. You know, so we're not we're not using outside sources. We're not trying to bring in other things. We're really trying to take every subject that we put forward in systematic theology has to have biblical background and biblical foundation. And I think that's what you know, scriptura sola scriptura is is actually looking at it from how do we have all these other theology systems in place? It all comes back to our belief that the Bible is what gives us that. And that's a that's a great uh, point to make a little commercial for our systematic theology open classes, we're not teaching someone's system. You know, so when you come to systematic theology, you're not going to hear a Calvinistic system or an Augustinian system or, you know, that sort of thing. When we say systematic theology, what we're simply saying is what are the big themes of, big theological themes of Scripture, how do they all fit together? What, yeah. is, what is the system of theology that we see here? So all of these pieces run as one large storyline. What are the primary elements of the one large storyline of the revelation of Scripture? 
we say, you know, sola scriptura is our is our starting point. And again, why is that important today? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, the reasons are obvious. We're talking about false teachers the last couple of weeks from 2 Timothy. We looked at some of the challenges of teaching in the church today among popular Protestant preachers and the the drama controversy surrounding Andy Stanley and which looks like a long running uh, deviation from biblical norms, New Testament teaching, Orthodox teaching on sex and gender and family and marriage and those things. And we're reminded over and over and over again of the need to, in the words of post-reformers, semper reformanda, always being reformed, to always be reforming. Um, we always need to be turning our Sells back to Scripture. Is this what the what the Bible says? Is this is this a biblical norm? So you know that's obviously the starting point. And then of course there are others. And if you study some of this with us, you know, sola fide, faith alone. How is a person saved? It's it's through faith. It's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but it's according to His mercy He saved us, and that mercy we receive through faith. And then uh, grace alone or solo gracia, we're saved by the grace of God alone. Again. God in His mercy saves sinners. Salvation is of the Lord, the Bible says. God initiates. God sustains. God guarantees. Um, God provides, ultimately, salvation. It's all of God. And then how does He do that? Solus Christus, Christ alone. Jesus alone is the means of salvation, not only for us, but for the world. And then how does all this fit together? The one overarching one, all this for God's glory alone. And so I think the big fruit of the Reformation would be this. It was a recapturing or a, a beginning of the recapturing of the glory of God, whereas the glory during the period that led up to Reformation was certainly a man-centered glory or a glory given to the church, the Roman Catholic Church primarily, or the Roman Church-centered church, and is a return to, no, all the glory goes to God alone. He He is the centerpiece of all things. Yeah, so the big split there, in, in a lot of ways, is what, what the Roman Catholic Church um, taught as in about tradition, that that their interpretation of Scripture is what matters as well. And it was just as authoritative as the Scripture itself was the interpretation that was given by the Church. And so you can see how that man-centered which is going to be interpreted, it's going to come out of a man's mouth, it's going to, can send you down uh, a line away from what orthodox is. And I think that's kind of what we saw over there. And, and it's amazing to me, like I said, I, I just got back from our trip, and um, just hearing and seeing the, the Catholicism that was so prevalent when those cathedrals were built in France, just to see the worship of Mary uh, as being one instance of that, um, they would not say worship of Mary. They would say the veneration or the hyper-veneration of Mary above the veneration of all the other saints as being so important. Uh, and then I think, you know, we see the the, the reformers coming back for that in, in this, this idea of solus Christus, you know, just Christ alone, how that would be against what they were teaching about Mary as the church was teaching. And again, that's a long-term deviation. You know, we are talking about centuries of... of a, a long, slow arc away from the truth of the first century. And, you know, it also reminds us, of course, of, of the printing of Scripture in the language of people in that era that really fomented the revolution because by that period of time in, in, in church history, people didn't, didn't have Scripture in their language. And they would go to worship services. Well, I use that term loosely. They go to church services where a mass was done 
in a language they didn't understand, typically. Yeah. So Mass is done in Latin. They didn't, the common people didn't speak Latin. They didn't know the Scriptures. And so the reattention to the, the re-enlightening of Scripture, now that Scripture is in the hands of common people, and they can begin to read it, and of course the church outlawed that. You know, I mean, this shows you how great was a deviation. The church outlaws private handling reading of Scripture because that's a function only of church leadership. But when you put that truth in the hands of people, again, and those are some sub-principles of Reformation, perpiscuity of Scripture, that Scripture, for the most part, is clear. It's, it's, it's plain. It's straightforward. It doesn't mean it's easy. You know? yeah. Peter talks about some of Paul's writings being difficult. But it means, for the most part, the message is clear. I can put this in your hands, and you're going to read it, and what's the plain understanding of its meaning? Wow. God created. I'm created to bear the image of God. I've defaced the image of God by my rebellion against Him, and now I'm in a state of sin, and I pass down that sin to every future generation. It's part of their nature, and it's also part of their practice. And God, in His mercy, is willing and able to deliver me from sin. He does that through the sacrifice of Jesus, third member of the Trinity. Um, And Jesus, God in the flesh, the Son of God, comes for the salvation of sinners. And so, again, People begin to read these things, and they begin to see the plain truth of it. See the plain truth of the storyline of, of Scripture and respond to it. So, yeah, I think it's still I think it's still critically important. And it's easy to be on this side of the Reformation and say, how could someone pay indulgences thinking that would you know get their loved one out of purgatory? But if you don't know what Scripture says yourself, because it's not in your language, it's not accessible, and you've been told you know those things are reserved for. The, the bishops and the popes, they're the ones that have the right interpretation. You can't question it, then yeah. And imagine that over an extended period of time. So that's what you're being told at home. That's what you're, that's what you're brought up being told. Your parents believe that. Your grandparents believe that. And, of course, you're in a largely uneducated populace. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it was perfect, perfectly ripe for, um, for heresy, for just utter, utter deviations that, only can be corrected by Scripture. And it's interesting when you read the history of the Reformation, how it really just sort of it began to happen in stages. Yeah. You know, in different Luke. places. Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it wasn't all, all, always right together. No. I mean, you have Switzerland, you have Germany, you have, you know, all well, these different places. You also have the Renaissance underlying it where people are looking back to old texts and trying to recover the Greek, and these monks are looking back, and Luther's looking back. And um, it was funny because when I was reading Luther, you— you could only read the Bible when you first started as a monk, and then you had to move on to other texts. You couldn't read the Bible after your first year. Almost like, and, and I, I think you still have probably pastors today that are guilty of not spending as much time in the Bible as they do on commentaries or other sources. Um, and so that... Moving past, the, moving past the text, you're right. And it's, you know, it's so fascinating that these early reformers, Luther most pronounced, they never set out to... Uh, create a new church. They never set out to create new denominations to to be Protestants. They were looking at real ref- reformation within the church. He was a he was a Catholic reformer. He's a he's a monk. Yeah. You know, he's a teacher. He's an instructor in the church, and and began to rebel against those indulgences. And when the Pope responded so poorly, it just began to force the issue of digging more deeply and deeply into Scripture. But by the time it was over, there was a complete shift in his thinking and in his theology, his understanding of God and the Word of God. So in the end, before his death, Luther, um, Luther stated that his most important work was the bondage of the will. You know, not, what a complete transformation that now he understands the sovereignty of God. Um, that, was, that was the fruit of, 
the process of reformation, of getting back to the scriptures and beginning to recognize this is not in the hands of the church, and it's certainly not in the hands of autonomous individuals. This is in the hands of a sovereign God. And you know, is that important for us today? Man, you betcha. We have a lot of conversations where we, you talk about, you reach some of these difficult passages in scripture that talk about terms that many people are uncomfortable with, like election or predestination. And more times than I can count on two hands, I've had people say, well, I don't believe in election. I don't believe in predestination. Of course, my response is usually a, a pat answer. You can't say you don't believe in them because they're in Scripture. Those are biblical terms. What you have to determine is what you believe about them. But by the end of his life and, and ministry, you know, Luther had made such a shift that he recognized that, man, as much as we like to talk about free will, and that's what people say today all the time. That's like a trump card. Well, I believe in free will. Well, tell me what you mean by that. And you know, back to the need for reminding ourselves of Reformation, I've talked to a number of pastors who've never read Bondage of the Will. And this is not just Luther's spin on things. This is Luther's take on, on so much of the teaching in the book of Romans. Of course, Luther is famous for his commentary on Romans. But in Bondage of the Will, you know, he, he speaks that. Yes, we have the ability to make choices, but our will is bound up in our sinful natures. Our, our will is bound up in our fallenness. And in that free will, we choose that which our flesh desires. We choose that which is evil. We choose that which is contrary to God. We will perpetually choose that which is, is sinful. That's who we are. It's what we choose. And so, yeah, there's a will, but there's a facade of that freedom because it's bound. So anyway, it's, it is, it's, it's healthy for us to revisit these things because they're timeless. In the Catholic Church, the pulpit is off to the side. The, the sacraments and the offerings, that is central. And the message preached in the Catholic Church is heavily focused on sin, which is then followed up by this is your means to, you know, atone for those sins. Whereas Luther, you know, he moved the pulpit to the center of the church because yeah, some of the scripture. That, that's a great insight. I mean, one of the abiding marks of the Reformation is the centrality of pulpit. So when you see today um, our emphasis on preaching, where does that come from? Is that just personal preference? It, you know, is that just are you our particular practice? No, I mean this is this is the heart of the Reformation. This is, we're a Reformation church, like any true biblical church is, and we value the centrality of, of preaching. What I would say is something good that you can do, particularly this season, as we recognize Reformation Day on October 31st, commemorating that, maybe that seminal act, certainly not the only one, one of many acts of Reformation. Um, when Martin Luther first placed those 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, um, certainly much more to Reformation than that, and he had no idea what was what was yet to come regarding that, would be to educate yourself. We've got some good books down in the, in the resource area, down at the Rock, that you can pick up. Do some good research online about this. Know, know who we are and, and know why these things still matter. And if you, if you know the solas, as Charles mentioned earlier, you can, the gospel is contained in all five of them. So if you can recount all five, you can preach yourself the gospel and share the gospel through those. And I think that's really the point. I mean, if you're looking at one, I mean, so oversimplistic, I get. But what is the big point of this? The Reformation was ultimately the, the recapturing of a gospel that was no longer being taught by the organized church. It was, it was a recapturing, refocus, a renewal of the gospel. And that's what God used to inflame 
the, the growth of of Christianity you know, throughout Europe and beyond. I mean, really began everything that we know about modern Christianity um, was renewed at that point, at the point we call the Reformation. So, well, one other thing I want to mention before we before we stop because I think it's it is interesting when you talk about tradition and then you talk about um, some of those things that the church puts out, so to speak. Maybe if you look at it from a broad sense, Paul, just speak to once again, speak to why we still though are also confessional as people that that just because we would say the church's tradition um, is not equal to the word of God. Why is it important that we also look back at those statements that were made by churches way back and that can be a part of who we are because that's not what we want to lose when we're talking about tradition there. Right. So um, a lot of people will say, isn't the Bible enough? Or I just believe the Bible. And we wouldn't argue at that point. We would say, Certainly, we we believe the Bible. The Bible is our only sure and steady guide. It's our only infallible guide. But no one just believes the Bible. They believe that the Bible says something. They believe something about the Bible. And so that really, that's the real challenge. What does the Bible say? What has the Bible taught us? And so the value of these historic creeds and confessions for us is they they tether us. The, the rock is is the Word of God. The tether to that rock, often for us, are these creeds and confessions where we say we agree with previous generations of the church that believe that the Bible teaches these things. The Bible reveals these things to us. And so those creeds and confessions are simple ways of us summarizing Bible teachings, maybe codifying them or putting them in in sort of an order, a system, so we can memorize them. But they're not replacements for Scripture. They are, they are the guardrails. Like an example we use in our open classes, for those of you who are as bad at bowling as I am, if you ever go with your kids and you put the bumpers up in the lanes to keep the ball from going in the gutter, that's what these creeds and confessions are. And so our, we have two statements of faith that we adhere to as a church. One is a little bit more fluid because it does change periodically, has changed several times, the Baptist faith and message. One has not changed since its inception, except just to modernize the language, is the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. But even those confessions are rooted in older confessions of faith, and they summarize older confessions of faith. We say these are helpful guardrails, that between these protective barriers is the truth that the church has held, what the church rightly has believed about the Bible for generations and generations, centuries and centuries. So those are those creeds and confessions. They keep us tied to our orthodox faith, and and they matter. Because, again, you know, I mentioned some churches by name. I'm not going to go into that today that I think are, are promulgating false teaching. But, you know, if you approach those churches, those leaders, the people that attend them, what are they going to say? Oh, we believe the Bible. Yeah. We teach the Bible. But what do you teach about the Bible? Do you teach the sufficiency of Scripture? Do you teach the inerrancy of Scripture? Do you teach the absolute authority of Scripture? And what do you believe the, the Scriptures say about these things? I mean, that's the essence of all the challenges of false teaching within the church since the first century is we deviate on what we believe the Bible says. So again, those creeds and confessions just help us express in unison with Christians of the past what we believe the Bible says. And also for us, I think it's just a matter of wisdom that we recognize just simply because we're newer, we're more recent, we're not wiser, smarter, uh, more insightful than previous generations were who gave much time and thought and put much toil and effort and even shed much blood 
for those confessions of faith and to stand on those on those statements of truth. And so again, so those historic confessions of faith deal with the divinity of Christ, for instance, or the biblical teaching of the Trinity, or you know the the nature of the ordinances, or the nature of salvation. Well, how how is a person saved, and and what is the true gospel? So, yes, we revisit those and and we hold those confessions along with Christians who've come before us. Yeah, I like the idea that you've said before, you know, we stand on the shoulders of a lot of spiritual giants, yeah. and we need to recognize that. For sure. Yeah, we, I mean, the, the, some of the worst theology you'll ever, you'll ever hear is modern theology that has no basis in history, um, much less basis in Scripture. It's, it's never been taught before because it's been recognized as false before. And, and, and one more reason, let me throw this out, Charles. I know it's a long answer to that short question, but a lot of the modern false teaching that we hear is simply just new spins on old heresies. It's just put in new terminology. Yeah. And so by knowing what these creeds and confessions said, we can say, you know what, the church dealt with that. Yeah. Like, for instance, this, this, uh, this Christmas season on Sunday nights, I'm going to be doing a series through the Nicene Creed. You know, the Nicene Creed has been a unifying creed of believers for centuries, and it deals with critical issues. Who is Jesus? Who is God? What is, who, who is the Holy Spirit? What is the church, and what is its role in our relationship together? Well, cr- biblically-minded Christians have agreed on these things. They're, they're established. For me, it resonates with Jude, you know, contending for the faith, once and for all entrusted to the saints. So, you know, I want to, I want to make sure that we're doing that. All right, well, hopefully this has been helpful to you and, and maybe it spurred you on to do your own research into the Reformation. And hopefully uh, on the 31st, instead of saying Happy Halloween, we'll be saying um, Happy Reformation Day. And uh, until next time, um, if you have questions for us, something you'd like for us to cover on the podcast, uh, just send us an email at podcast at calvarydothan.com and uh, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, just remember that Calvary is for God, for Dothan, and for the world.